The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for March 6, 2022. We're now a week into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Amidst coverage of the fighting and guessing what Russia's next move will be, there seems to be a lot of questions about Russian President Vladimir Putin. Why did he do this? Is he mentally sane? Who is Vladimir Putin really? And what does he want? To give some insight into these questions, I chose an archive episode from December 2017. In the episode, Alina Polyakova talked to Mikhail Zigar, a Russian independent journalist and the author of two books on the Kremlin's elite circle. They discussed why Putin may be far from a strategic mastermind and what it's really like to be close to Vladimir Putin. I'm Alina Polyakova, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 9th, 2017. Just last month, the U.S. Department of Justice required RT, the Kremlin-funded propaganda news outlet, to register as a foreign agent. In response, the Russian government passed a law cracking down on Western media operating in Russia. For this episode of Lawfare's special Russia series, I talked to Mikhail Zegar, who's a Russian independent journalist, filmmaker, and author of two books on the Kremlin's elite circle. Misha tells us what it's like to be an independent journalist in Putin's Russia and why he thinks Putin is far from a strategic mastermind. Is the Lawfare Podcast, episode 267, Mikhail Zegar on Putin as the Accidental King. So Misha, I wanted to ask you to do this podcast for a variety of reasons. Um, one is you are, uh, I think, a well-known independent journalist, writer, filmmaker. You are one of the uh, founding um, editor-in-chiefs of uh, the independent Russian television channel TV Dojd or TV Rain. Um, and you were there, I think, in a really interesting and critical time um, in development of Russia under Putin, that was from 2011, 2015. Of course, this is when the intervention um, in Ukraine happened, the occupation of Crimea, the invasion of, of the Donbass. And Dojt was, uh, uh, I think, one of the only, if not the only uh, television channels reporting on some of these issues. And, you know, right now in, in Washington, there's a lot of more attention to the situation for independent media in, in Russia. Uh, RT, the Kremlin-funded television channel that broadcasts in the United States, uh, registered as a foreign agent, uh, complying with the Department of Justice request to do so in November. And as a result, there's been a lot of fear among journalists, among Russia observers, that there's going to be retaliation in Russia against independent media. Western media, but also Russian media. Given all the years you spent, you know, working in Russia, reporting uh, a different point of view than what the Russian state media reports, I wanted to start by getting your sense of, you know, what is it really like to be an independent journalist in Russia today? What was it like during your years? That's a very good question. And it seems to me that um, actually the dangers of being a uh, an independent journalist in Russia is usually overestimated or exaggerated in, in Western media. 
Actually, you can be independent journalist in Russia. That's possible. We have a lot of independent journalists, but each of them um, has has an alternative. He or she um, has to choose if he wants or she wants to to be a, an independent media uh, independent journalist, and that means that he or she uh, will not be successful, will not be rich, and uh, they are going to be miserable because. Uh, that's the only option for uh, for Russian media market uh, that any independent media cannot be successful and profitable. Uh, so that's under th- that condition, we have a lot of uh, independent news websites. We 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 have some even radio stations. Uh, we we used to have one um, independent TV channel called Dorst which founding editor-in-chief I was. Now it's much more a fee-paid news website, but it still exists. Uh, that that tradition of, uh, of independent uh, media outlets, uh, independent newspapers or TV channels not being able uh, to remain successful, to, to, uh, to remain sustainable, uh, is a long tradition, and that's the way how the uh, the system usually puts pressure on independent media. Uh, independent media cannot have uh, commercial partners; they cannot uh, earn any money from uh, advertisers. So they they have to be very poor. Uh, some sometimes they they have to uh, to just um, to stop their activities because of lack of of any money but at the same time that uh that economic situation uh helps uh russian new media to uh to try to develop and try to flourish in, in that sense online media social media are much more um developed in, in russia that than probably in many countries of the world that looks like a global trend that uh, traditional uh, newspapers or traditional t- broadcast TV channels are are slowly dying um, everywhere in the world, except for Russia, because in Russia all the real independent uh, newspapers or uh, broadcast TV channels are already dead, and uh, the only mm, quality media in Russia are are always online. Some sometimes uh, these are like investigative bloggers or uh, some very little uh, um, private independent media, but, but they, are, they, they are managing to continue very important investigations to, uh, to, to, to publish very um, important uh, articles, uh, researches, and so on. That's, that's the only way for, uh, for Russian journalists uh, to be independent. Um, I take your point that uh, the picture is much more uh, over-exaggerated than it is in reality, meaning that there is, of course, an independent media uh, in Russia today. I read it. Many people read it. But it does seem like the situation mm-hmm. is getting much worse. And it's, it seems like it's going beyond uh, the regime's uh, limits on the funding, the resources that you're talking about that independent media can have access to, which of course limits their ability to reach broader audiences because of course you need money for that. Uh, but it does seem that more and more, you know, on a monthly basis now, uh, we're hearing reports of attacks on journalists who are reporting uh, on issues in a way that is not in line with the government's view of the world. Totally agree with you when you're saying that uh, the situation is getting worse, and that's true. Um, uh, let's say uh, about three years ago, uh, uh, TV Rain, uh, the TV channel I used to run, uh, had 20 million viewers per day. Uh, or uh, we had another uh, very important media holding called uh, called RBK. That, that was also a very important uh, uh, news uh, corporation. And very independent, and, and now uh, T- TV Rain is just a little website beyond the, the paywall with only seventy thousand thousand subscribers, and uh, the whole editorial team of RBK had to leave uh, 
that that media and the whole team was replaced by by other people and the uh, the whole editorial policy has changed so so yes you are right the situation is becoming worse and worse and and when when now i'm, I'm saying that the only uh, quality um, investigations could turn up uh, on the internet that's the reality uh, that is quite new for our country. I, 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 I'm sorry for interrupting you because I could not agree with the fact that we are facing a lot of, uh, you know, um, threats or or uh, independent journalists are in danger because of their reporting. We had a very outrageous uh, attack on uh, Tatiana Filigenhauer. Um, could you say a few words about who Tatiana is for our listeners who may not know? I will, sure. Uh, she she is a news anchor, and she uh, she is uh, um, a, um, a, uh, an anchor of a morning uh, show of uh, radio station Echo of Moscow. Uh, this radio station is is famous for for being one of the most uh, independent and probably the only uh, the only one uh, independent or approximately independent um, radio station and and Tatiana is deputy editor-in-chief and she and she's one of the most famous reporters of that uh, of, of that radio um, so so that that was a really uh, uh, a really first attack against her she she was uh, attacked by by a man who is who claims or or who is supposed to be mentally insane we don't know anything uh, uh about the real reasons of, of of that attack we know that that tatiana suspects that that he was not actually uh insane but he was pretending we we still don't know but normally uh i usually say that that in russia journalists are no more threatened than like i don't know plumbers uh, the the situation is not that different for for different people. Any one of us could be attacked any day, but normally we're, we're safe. We know that 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 Russian judiciary system, and Russian police and uh, prison system is is the major threat to to anyone living in Russia. We we're not facing direct th- uh, threats from from unknown um, criminals or or for or from some unknown uh, uh, government-related structures, we know that that we we, we are quite vulnerable, and uh, any any one of us could could be accused of anything, uh, and and we we are rather uh, fragile um, in front of of Russian police or, or Russian judiciary system because none of us believes in. Uh, in free and uh, or independent judiciary system, and we, we and much more journalists are suffering uh, b- uh, because they have been accused of uh, uh, of some crimes no one believes they they have um, committed. Um, so, I mean, not physical attacks, but but uh, I would say psychological at- uh, attacks or those. Um, uh, unfair trials are much more, uh, uh, much much bigger threat uh, to Russian journalism. And uh, just returning to the first que- question about if if Russian authorities could uh, uh, respond to uh, to the registration of RT as a foreign agent uh, in the U.S. and if uh, if the, the, there could be any revenge for Russian independent media, actually uh, I'm afraid yes because. Uh, the first thing they have started talking about uh, was uh, some restrict uh, were some restrictions uh, of internet, and internet is uh, is exactly uh, the platform for all the uh, independent media, uh, all the uh, independent um, investigative journalists who are trying to work uh, to work um, as bloggers or as um, a lot of new media which are turning up in Russia. So definitely, that that is the last uh, uh, stronghold of, of media freedom in Russia. So I think that's something that hasn't been discussed that much, is that the this new, uh, quote-unquote, uh, retaliatory law 
that uh, President Putin signed uh, on November 25th actually greatly expanded the government's mandate to be able to limit uh, content that is published not just in print, but increasingly more online in the digital space. And this has been part of, a, I think, a, what has been a long-term strategy to try to uh, control what is published in the online space and try to control access to the online space by, by the Kremlin uh, that's been going on for a very long time. Um, so I, I think, you know, the point you're, that you're making, though, is that even though independent Russian journalists may not face more threats than your average you know, Russian citizen from uh, the secret services or the state police or um, other administrative bodies of the Russian government, the situation in terms of the clampdown on independent media's ability to function um, is, is getting much worse. So my question to you is, you know, given that the state-run media dominate um, the information space in Russia, what is the regime really afraid of as they seek to limit the ability of independent media to do their work in print and, and online? Uh, I don't think that they are really afraid. Uh, I think the word afraid is, is, not, is not really appropriate because they, 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 they are quite self-confident and they, they, they really think that, uh, that they are okay. Uh, that's much more a habit, but that's much more a tradition that, that they, they have always, they, they always want to, to uh, uh, adjust uh, the system. They always want to, to, um, to make their lives uh, more comfortable. That's not part of the strategy. Uh, for example, um, uh, in, in my previous book, All the Kremlin's Men, uh, I described that uh, for President Putin and uh, and his inner circle and 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 Kremlin administration. Uh, there are no long-term strategies. They never have that. They don't have a strategy for for Russian economic uh, economic situation. They don't have a strategy for foreign policy. They don't have any strategy for for Russian media. Do do we believe that that they have a plan how to how to put pressure on, on the independent media and uh, what amount of uh, independent journalists uh, uh, should be to- tolerated in Russia or not. No, they, they don't have any plan at all. They don't have even a, um, a bureaucrat in Kremlin who is in charge of, uh, uh, of the media because normally they have four, uh, at least four, uh, very high-ranking uh, um Top-level bu- bureaucrats in Kremlin, uh, all of them are officially named uh, f- um, deputy um, chief of staff uh, of Kremlin or first deputy um, chief of staff. They they are absolutely uh, independent from one another. They are always competing one another. They are always trying to prove uh, to President Putin that that each of them is more effective than another one. The, uh, there are a lot of intrigues between uh, all these bureaucrats, and they are uh, they are trying to to invent the new rules, the new amendments, the new um, sanctions against media. Sometimes they 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 are trying to uh, to pretend that they are uh, liberal, or at least more liberal than others, and and then they are trying to protect liberal media. Um, the next day, they they're trying uh, to uh, to prove that that they are the most loyal uh, to to President Putin. So that's you know that's a mixture of of different interests uh, of different businessmen of different politicians of different bureaucrats, uh, and actually that that's not a one single strategy. What what to do with independent media? Uh, Putin is usually very reactive. Uh, he he's not a strategic player. He he's tactical player. And this is a big debate um, among the the Russia watchers um, in the West as well. You know, is Putin a tactician or a strategist? Uh, I think the debate is a little moot. Um, I take your point, and I think I agree with you that uh, it is a series of reactive tactics driven by competition among the elite. 
to curry favor with Putin um, and to present him with ideas that will satisfy him when it comes specifically to the to the media space, but pretty much all other issues as well. But can't a series of short-term thinking tactics um, over the years add up to uh, what looks like a much broader uh, repression strategy? Mm, yes, definitely. And that's, that's, uh, that's how we've come to, to the uh, situation where we know. In the beginning of his first presidential term, Putin didn't want and didn't play to bring us into that desert. Uh, that was like, you know, step by step, <laughs> bit by bit. And as a result of all those intrigues between uh, his assistants, we are in that terrible situation we are in now. At the same time, definitely, uh, this, the, the new strategy or the... <laughs> The new attempt uh, to to create a strategy or or or, or long term tactical plan uh, for his next presidential term should be de- determined right after the presidential elections. Uh, at least uh, uh, we we hear those talks uh, now in mm-hmm. Russia, and uh, de- definitely after March, they 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 have to. Um, to try to, to create so, some kind of a plan, uh, what what should they do next? Uh, which uh, which part of Russian po- population should they, they focus on? Uh, uh, which ideology should should they um, use as their um, main message to Russian people? So probably after the the, the presidential election um, pressure against uh, free internet and independent media could be, could become even more because actually uh, I'm, I'm afraid it will be. Hmm. So you mentioned your book already and I wanted to go back to talk um, a little bit about that. Um, you know, all, all the Kremlin's men, your first book, um, Inside the Court of Vladimir Putin, uh, published in 2015, became a bestseller in Russia, uh, has been translated into English. Uh, I think what's very interesting about the book that you started talking about is how you frame decision making that has happened or has developed um, under Putin since he came to power. Uh, You refer to Putin as an accidental king. Can you explain just very briefly why you see him as this, you know, accidental leader, uh, not someone who has strategically uh, I suppose, come to power, maintain power. Um, why, why is he the accidental king? Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, he has never been a politician and he has never wanted to be one and he has never planned uh, to become Russian president. Uh, that was not his choice. That, that looks like a legend, but I, I suspect that that is true. Uh, that the first time he was offered uh, the position of Yeltsin's successor, uh, he answered that uh, he would like to become um, the CEO of Gazprom, Russian uh, state-owned uh, natural gas corporation. Uh, that's, that was not his choice. He was offered uh, to be a pre- presidential candidate, to be a prime minister, to be the next Russian president after Boris Yeltsin. Um, and in the beginning, after he accepted the, that proposal, uh, he didn't have his own um, his own strategy. He didn't have his own agenda, and uh, his his agenda of his first presidential term was was not his idea. That that was an idea. Uh, that was an agenda of the team that uh, made him presidential candidate. Uh, in the beginning. Thanks to that agenda, and th- thanks to those uh, uh, the, those people who formed his inner circle, he seemed to be, uh, and, and actually he was probably uh, very um, reform oriented. He was one of the most pro Western leaders in Russian history. Uh, just uh, a short example: he he was the only Russian leader to to propose. Um, Russia joining NATO, and he, he was even discussing that 
with George W. Bush and Lord George Robertson, that time Secretary General of NATO. Uh, in the beginning, Putin uh, really wanted to, uh, to implement some a bit painful but very uh, bold liberal economic reforms. Uh, unfortunately, all those reforms stopped um, uh, in in first three years of his first presidential term. There were di- different reasons for, for Putin to change his mind during the, the very first presidential term. Uh, di- different reasons for, for stopping the, uh, the reforms. And the major reason was uh, that the economic situation was okay even without all those painful reforms because the, the oil prices uh, started rocketing and no one needed actually all those reforms. The situation became very um, successful and prosperous uh, even without them. Uh, he, he stopped being very pro-Western because first he wanted uh, to make friends with his Western partners as George W. Bush or Tony Blair. Uh, then he felt that he's not really respected, uh, respected and, and he's not uh, treated uh, as an equal partner. And he was very insulted by that. That was a very personal approach. And, and actually, he usually uses uh, that personal approach in, in international uh, relationships. Uh, uh, he was offended by uh, NATO enlargement. He was offended of not being invited to join um, uh, Iraqi operation. Um, then he started being paranoid because of uh, a lot of a lot of people from his inner, inner circle uh, telling him that uh, there, were, there was some uh, American-led conspiracy against him. He started believing in that global conspiracy. He started believing that the real aim of uh, Bush doctrine uh, was a regime change in Russia. He started believing that that, that uh, America really wants to overthrow him. Um, and actually, he, he changed most of his uh, principles. He, he seemed to, uh, to believe in, in the beginning of his first presidential term. Um, that's what I mean that that he has become a really accidental uh, president, accidental leader, um, promoting those values that were not his true values when when he was chosen uh, to be Yeltsin's successor. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 
separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. You talk about this transformation of Putin from his early terms. Um, you call him Putin the Lionhearted, who, who believed or at least said to um, have believed uh, the, the power of actual real economic reforms that, that all failed for various reasons. And then, and then this other change that comes in him, where he eventually, because of the paranoia you describe, um, the the emotional response, the taking personally these uh, political, geopolitical outcomes, decisions made by the UK, the United States in the early two thousands, that he transforms into what he is now, which is uh, Putin terrible, um, as we call him. Um, I think what keeps coming out uh, in all the conversations we have about, you know, who is who is Putin really? Um, you know, none of us really know. Uh, you may know the best because uh, you did an amazing number of interviews uh, for this book with the inner circle um, around Putin. Um, and I wanted to get a sense from you, you know, one, what was it like to talk to all of these power brokers uh, within the Kremlin? Uh, you know, were they open? To, did you get the sense they were open to having a conversation with you? Um, you know, how did you even get them to talk to you in the first place? And were you surprised that so many were willing to talk to you about these uh, dealings within the court, if you want to call it that? 
yeah, you know that that's 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 a question I'm always asked. And first, you won't, you probably you will believe me, uh, and uh, that's that's a thing that that uh, almost everyone knows in Russia, but almost no one knows outside of Russia. The majority of Putin's inner circle is very pro-Western and very liberally minded. Uh, something like 99% of our government, of, uh, of the, the, the people who are supposed to be in charge of, of, of Russian politics, in, 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 uh, in, in terms of political liberalism uh, mainly. And, and they, they are very pro-free uh, pro market, uh, pro-capitalism, not in American meaning of, of liberalism. Russian version of, of, of liberalism uh, usually means pro, pro-democracy and, and being anti, um, um, anti-communism and anti-authoritarianism um, at the same time. Wait, wait, Misha, I have to ask you then. Um, so you said that 99% of uh, those elites uh, close uh, to the Russian government or part of the Russian government um, who consider themselves liberal, even liberal in the sense of pro-democratic, even though Russia um, is not a democracy in the, in, in the way that at least democracy is understood to be in, in Western countries. That's a paradox, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I would say that, that they are much more uh, pro-West than pro-democratic. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've heard so many times from them the same mantra that, yeah, definitely we want Russia to be a democratic country. But, you know, Russia is not ready for it. Uh, we have to wait. The situation is so very unstable so far. Our enemies are so aggressive. The economic crisis is so dangerous. So we, we have to wait for at least 10 or about or 20 years so to stabilize the, the internal um, situation. And probably in 10 or 20 years, Russia is going to be much more, much more ready for free elections, for free media, for really independent judicial system, and so on and so on. Unfortunately, I'm, um, I'm hearing that, that uh, nonsense for, for many years. And some, sometimes it seems that, that some people uh, really believe in that. Sometimes pe- uh, people... People from the government or from from the administration understand that that's just uh, um, that's just an excuse. That, that, that's just a cynical uh, a, a cynical talk of professional politician. But still, all of them or most of them are very pro Western. Most of them care about their reputation. None of them uh, believes that they are some evil doers. None of them th- think that that they are. They could be considered to be to be Doctor Evil or uh, or corrupted, cynical politician, and all they want uh, want um, to to have their repu- reputation much cleaner uh, than they can, and even more, they want to uh, to be remembered as crystal clear statesmen in Russian history. So, I mean, it it sounds like what's interesting in what you're describing is, is two things. Um, one is that. Uh, all all of this talk that eventually at some point Russia could be ready uh, to be a democratic country once we really stabilize uh, the poli- the economic system and the political system, but that in a way this talk um, is is also used as an excuse to justify uh, a much more you know controlled expansive state apparatus that has come to be um, under the current regime. At the same time, a lot of people from Putin's inner circle do not dare um, to give him any advice because they know that, that they are tolerated only because they do not criticize him and they do not annoy him with their own initiatives. They're answering his questions. They are um, fulfilling his demands. They are trying to be as professional as they could and understand their limits. And watch their limits. So, so a lot of those uh, um, uh, uh, politically liberally minded pro reform bureaucrats are very careful about not uh, speaking their minds. 
but I think, you know, that also points to, to the second, I think, trend that you're describing, that there is still hope um, that even among the Russian elite, which I think in the West tend to be seen as uh, pro-Putin, anti-democratic, so the opposite of what you're describing, anti-liberal, anti-Western, um, but you're saying that, no, actually, there is still a group within the elite um, that at least like to think of themselves as a pro-Western liberal, um, you know, bureaucrats, party officials, uh, uh, government officials, and that, you know, they're in a certain kind of system where they're fearful, anxious, um, because they don't want to displease uh, the Kremlin or Putin himself, but that, you know, maybe there's still hope that there could, if there is political change in Russia, there could be uh, an, an individual or a set of individuals uh, that come to power at some point um, that could actually usher in a more, I guess, open, democratic, liberal era uh, to, to, to follow uh, Putin whenever that moment comes. Oh, you know, I, I really think that, that that's meaningless speculation. Because unfortunately, we we have to we we have to always ask our, ourselves what what's going to happen after after Putin. Uh, that was the question I was uh, asking all of them, uh, mostly uh, uh, those pro-Western uh, members of uh, of Putin's in in circle. But but there are hawkish guys as well, and and I cannot consider them to be pro-Western. Uh, and most of them gave me approximately the same answer and it was like you know that's such a scary question what's going to happen next after Putin so I I cannot think about that that's the major factor of instability in Russia actually uh, current stability itself is the major factor of instability that we don't have any political institutions that can guarantee that uh, that any transition of power is going to be to be safe and peaceful and um, and effective, because we we don't we don't know any scenario of uh, of, of of that transition. Uh, the key message of uh, of Putin's propaganda is that, uh, and actually that that's unfortunately um, is that, that that Putin believes in. He believes in that he is the only one capable to run the country. He's the only one uh, who's able to. Uh, to keep it uh, stable, and his inner circle are not thinking of that scenario of who is going to, uh, to come next. They usually uh, trying to to explain that that the, the current stability is better than that un, unexpected and unpredictable democracy. They they always say that that uh, even within Putin's inner circle. Um, there are a lot of uh, um, d- different decent uh, uh, pro-reform bureaucrats, or even uh, not in in inner circle. Um, but there are some some of his old old friends, like for example Alexei Kudrin, uh, who used to be his former prime minister. Um, I'm sorry, for, former minister of of, fi- of finances, and he's rumored that he's got chances to be, to be, to become probably next prime minister uh, after the next presidential election and and that's that 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 that's going to be the the best scenario um of of russian liberalization uh from above as, as background for our listeners kudrin is known uh to be uh, a reform oriented uh individual who has been close to putin for a long time serving various uh roles up uh, uh highest role as a finance minister at one point under Putin, and who's been tasked uh, with uh, proposing an economic uh, uh, reform agenda to the Kremlin. But so far, we haven't seen a great deal of what that actually will mean uh, going forward. I must add that for for last, like, five years, um, uh, Kudrin is is, um, in the opposition, and he is criticizing if not Putin personally, but but at least the system and and the corruption and uh, and Kudrin looks like um, an allowed opposition. He could be con- considered to, to be a, d- a decent person, 
uh, within t today's Russian political la landscape with only one uh, important detail that, that we all know that, that he's still rather close to, uh, to President Putin and he will not ever challenge him. He will not run for, uh, for presidency against Putin. He, he would not um, attack Putin personally. He would not go to, to any protest rally without informing Putin um, about that. So I, I want to spend a few minutes um, highlighting the fact that you, even though you're very young, um, you have now published a second book. Uh, so you've done a lot of amazing things in, in your career already. And the second book is just out. Um, and it's called, has the very dramatic title of The Empire Must Die. <laughs> um, but it's not a book about contemporary Russian politics. Um, it's really a look inside uh, Russia as it was leading up uh, to the revolution of 1917. And, you know, I, I just want to get a sense from you. You wrote this, this wonderful book, All the Kremlin's Men. Uh, there was this deep look into the decision-making process of the Kremlin today. And then you switch to this more historical um, account of, what, of Russia in the revolutionary days. And do you see, you know, what drove you to to switch uh, from contemporary to historical? And as you were writing the book, did you see um, a lot of similarities or not between uh, where Russia was then um, at the turn of the 20th century and to where Russia is today at, at the turn of the 21st century? Yeah, you know, probably the most, uh, the most important mission for me was uh, to try to... Um, to create uh, some another angle of uh, of Russian Revolution of 1917 and try try to uh, to write a history of uh, Russian civil society not not history of Russian authorities because usually uh, all traditional uh, versions of Russian history are very focused on the uh, on the authorities and Russian leaders and uh, Russian society doesn't have any um, mm, Obvious examples of uh, what what uh, their the predecessors were thinking of and how they were um, influ influencing the situation. And actually, the beginning of twentieth century was was probably the uh, the the period when when Russian civil society was booming. Actually, Russian Revolution of, of nineteen seventeen was was initiated by Russian civil society. That was the moment when when Russian society was the most influential culturally politically uh, economically russian autocracy collapsed because it was ineffective and uh, corrupted and bureaucratic and at the same time russian civil society was was very active the book is about the people it, it does have a lot of similarities with with our t today's russia one of them a very important one is that that uh, 100 years ago, there, there was a huge conflict between Russian authorities and Russian civil society. Uh, and there was uh, a great level of mutual distrust. And Russian authorities, uh, including the emperor and his family, could not believe that uh, the opposition li leaders uh, could uh, be sincere. They always had, uh, not only uh, imperial family, but the bureaucracy thought that all the critics of the regime uh, might be uh, spies or traitors or uh, might, might have been bribed by the security agencies or intelligence services and so on. That uh, prejudice against, against the opposition within Russian bureaucracy is a never-ending tradition. And that's what, what we hear now. And how corruption works as the uh, the factor st uh, st stabilizing Russian bureaucracy is very is very interesting fact. It uh, it worked um, to to unify Russian bureaucracy one hundred years ago as well, and it continues to do that now under Putin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's even it's even much more important than 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 it was one hundred years ago. Uh, at the same time, you know, Russia 100 years ago was probably, or R Russian society at least, was a bit more democratic 
because by that time we had something like 50 years after um, the independent judiciary was established by the Emperor Alexander II, uh, something like 50 years after uh, the free and fair local elections were established. So the, the civil society was, was very, very certain of its rights and, and, and uh, of its possibilities to influence the situation. Russian big business was, was very uh, ambitious in, in its uh, attempts uh, to change the, the political system. Given the, similarity, the similarities you're describing, uh, yes or no question <laughs> before I let you go. Um, you know, the empire collapses uh, in Russia 100 years ago. Do you see a similar collapse in Russia's future today? No, it's not going to, to happen soon. I hope it's not going to be that tragic as it happened uh, uh, 100 years ago because the, the collapse of that empire could, could be absolutely different. The, the Bolshevik revolution was not the only option. So uh, I hope uh, the end of, of current regime is going to be, I hope, much more peaceful and, and would lead to much more democratic Russia that, than it happened um, 100 years ago. But I definitely see that the autocratic uh, system uh, in our country is not sustainable. The Lawfare Podcast in producing cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to tweet the Lawfare podcast, share it on Facebook, Vkontakte, and give it a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast distribution system you may use. Our music is performed by Sofia Yan. I'm Alina Polyakova. Thanks for listening. Is it Yan or Jan? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.